As dead flies give perfume a bad smell, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. The heart of the wise inclines to the right, but the heart of the fool to the left. Even as fools walk along the road, they lack sense and show everyone how stupid they are. If a ruler's anger rises against you, do not leave your post. Calmness can lay great offenses to rest. There is an evil I have seen under the sun, the sort of error that arises from a ruler. Fools are put in many high positions, while the rich occupy the low ones. I have seen slaves on horseback, while princes go on foot like slaves. Whoever digs a pit may fall into it. Whoever breaks through a wall may be bitten by a snake. Whoever quarries stones may be injured by them. Whoever splits logs may be endangered by them. If the axe is dull and its edge unsharpened, more strength is needed, but skill will bring success. If a snake bites before it is charmed, the charmer receives no fee. Words from the mouth of the wise are gracious, but fools are consumed by their own lips. At the beginning, their words are folly. At the end, they are wicked madness, and fools multiply words. No one knows what is coming. Who can tell someone else what will happen after them? The toil of fools wearies them. They do not know the way to town. Woe to the land whose king was a servant and whose princes feast in the morning. Blessed is the land whose king is of noble birth and whose princes eat at a proper time, for strength and not for drunkenness. Through laziness, the rafters sag. Because of idle hands, the house leaks. A feast is made for laughter. Wine makes life merry. And money is the answer for everything. Do not revile the king, even in your thoughts, or curse the rich in your bedroom. Because a bird in the sky may carry your words, and a bird on the wing may report what you say. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Meg. Happy Mother's Day, everybody. Beautiful day. So we're making our journey through the book of Ecclesiastes, and we're almost done. Can anybody remember the two postures that we're trying to establish through 2023? Just shout them out. Be bold. Yes. Well done, class. So good. Rest is a way of being. Resilience is a way of doing. That's our posture through 2023 to combat, to counterform against what we think are two of the most dangerous challenges facing modern Christianity, exhaustion and cynicism. Just to set this up as we go into the summer, we'll wrap this up here in about two weeks. And then we're going to be in the books of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and learning how to become a community of love. We're going to be studying attachment theory and the framework of hesed love from the Old Testament and how do we actually care for me for each other? How do we actually understand who the Trinity is in light of who we are together? It's going to be an incredible summer together. So if you're considering making neighbors your home, this summer would be a great time to jump into a community. Be loved. Learn how to love. Let's pray. And we're going to get into our text for the morning. <clears throat> Father, thank you. I too pray for my mama. I pray for my wife. I pray for all the women in this room, each and every one of them nurturing and careful, so wise and so needed, so necessary. Thank you, Father, that though you 
reveal yourself as father. You are tender and kind and gentle like a mother. And so bless, Father. And as the traditions and the history of the church has so labeled herself, the church, the mother of the people. God, may we be a mothering presence, this church, a mothering presence in this city to take in the orphans, to care for them, to tend to them, to love them, and to let them know that they are our family. As we prepare to wrap up this book here over the next few weeks, may you remind us that this life is short, and may we be focused and clear in your purpose for our, for our lives. We worship you now in Jesus' name. All of God's people said, amen. So uh, in the early 60s, Edward Lorenz, he was a mathematician, meteorologist, and he was running figures on a weather model. And he ran out of decimal points on this particular weather model, so he decided to round the figures by about three decimal points in this particular weather model that he was running. So he rounded the figures down by those decimal points, left the model to run, and went away. When he returned to it, I don't know how long, quite a while later, he was shocked because that fractional shift of decimal points in the model had unleashed absolute meteorological chaos. He called this the butterfly effect, a force mathematically as insignificant as a butterfly flapping its wings, just a few decimal points that he had adjusted, had given rise in the model to hurricanes on the other side of the planet. How many of you are familiar with the butterfly effect? You've ever heard of this? Yeah. Some of the math nerds in here are like, oh yeah, this is awesome. The butterfly effect became the perfect metaphor to describe chaos theory. Chaos theory. Chaos theory is the branch of mathematics and physics that studies the unpredictability of dynamic systems, particularly systems, closed systems that are highly sensitive to infinitesimal conditions. So uh, we're watching Jurassic Park, all six of them right now as a family. I just decided that yesterday we watched the first one. So cue up right now Jeff Goldblum. Jeff Goldblum in that movie plays chaos theorist Dr. Malcolm. I love that character. And he's warning the Jurassic, car the Jurassic Park cre creators, look, you cannot control systems as complex and as unpredictable as life. It's an impossibility. He's warning them tiny, unnoticed variations introduced into the system have drastic effect. And though they were all female dinosaurs, as Dr. Malcolm said, uh, 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 life, life finds a way. Cue up dinosaurs eating humans for the next six movies. <laughs> Humanity from the beginning has failed to realize the wonderful and powerful and detrimental effects that our decisions have beyond just the moment and beyond just ourselves. Now, Koheleth, he was a sort of chaos theorist himself. He had studied all that there was to experience in life, and he had observed that the human experience, that is our beliefs, our behaviors, our relationships, our politics, our economics, Koheleth observed that all of life, it is this highly complex, dynamic system where little things matter a lot. Insignificant choices have massive consequences. Moments as unnoticed as a butterfly flapping its wings can give rise to hurricanes later on. Now, in our text, he addresses four categories of the human experience where small things have outsized influence, wisdom and foolishness, authority and community, work and awareness, speech and integrity. Wisdom and foolishness, authority and community, work and awareness, speech and integrity. Let's dig into those for just a little bit. 
As Koheleth goes through these four categories, I want you to notice something in the text itself. He sort of weaves back and forth. He dances back and forth between two extreme poles as he talks about these categories of the human experience. At one pole, Koheleth noticed that a little tiny bit of bad can ruin a huge amount of good, a very sober warning, warning for all of us. But vice versa, he also noticed in life that just a tiny little bit of good can radically reshape a whole lot of bad, which is an extremely hopeful truth for all of us in this room right now. So he starts with one of his most common themes woven throughout the entirety of the book, wisdom and foolishness. As dead flies give perfume, a bad smell, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. Let me just stop there and comment. In earlier sessions, we defined wisdom throughout the book of Ecclesiastes as the fear of the Lord. And foolishness, we defined as blatant disregard for God and his will. So here, Koheleth is warning that just a little tiny bit, a fraction, a few decimal points of disregard for God, like a dead fly, can taint all the wise decisions that one has made throughout their life. The whole bottle of perfume is ruined by one little moment, one little dead fly made to stink. So a person can live their life with wisdom and in the worship of God, but we are always only one foolish decision away from wrecking it all. It's very sobering, very intense warning. We've all heard of the longstanding CEO that at the very end, right before he retires, he wrecks it because he, be, he just decides one day he's going to embezzle just a little bit of money. Or that respected pastor who got arrogant in his later years and didn't yield to counsel, please pray for me. <laughs> The student who trashed their degree, just a little bit of plagiarism that the English prof noticed. Or a friend group that gets destroyed by that one offhand comment during a cup of coffee conversation. Or a kid losing the trust of their parents just because one night, one night they decide to go out for a little excursion with their friends. Trust and respect and integrity and achievement, friends, these are terribly fragile things. And an entire lifetime of good can be lost in a two-second decision. So he describes wise living, this fearing the Lord, and foolish living, disregarding God's will, as two different paths. He uses interesting language. The wise go to the right, the foolish go to the left. And what he's saying there is one goes to the right, one goes to the left. These two ways of living, wise living and foolish living, they lead to very, very different ends. If and when we try to mingle just a little bit of foolishness with our wise living, everybody needs to understand that we've actually already chosen that moment, a, a definitive fork in the road. The mingling of foolishness with wisdom is actually the moment that the butterfly's wings begin to flap. The proverbial, how close to the cliff can we get with this sinful, foolish decision? Koheleth says, no, the moment you've decided to get close to the cliff, you might as well huck yourself off. You've decided. Wisdom and foolishness can't mingle one with the other. For Koheleth, those who choose foolishly, even in the most seemingly inconsequential moments, they've already chosen the road to folly. And so the NIV is pretty brash in its translation. Actually, this is one of the moments where the NIV was like, let's just say it as it is. This is what the Hebrews were saying. Even as fools walk along the road, they lack sense and show everyone how stupid they are. <laughs> Tiny but foolish choices that disregard God eventually become apparent to everybody. No matter how wise we polish up the outward appearances of our lives, if we're mingling foolish disregard for God in the midst of all of our wisdom outwardly, eventually it will reveal a glaring stupidity to all, including ourselves. So for Koheleth, these small choices between wisdom and folly, 
They had no greater consequences. For him, as he watched the human experience, he said, wisdom and folly and these tiny little decisions that have outsized effect, nowhere is that more apparent than in the context of human relationships. Let's talk about authority and community here for just a moment. Authority and community. Let's break down relationships, just so you guys can see the world that I say, the way that I see the world. Human relationships, they are dynamic systems. And human relationships are terribly sensitive to the tiniest bits of input. These dynamic systems of relationship, they are built on three things. Equality, hierarchy, and authority. All relationships are built on an interweaving, an intermingling of equality, authority, and hierarchy. Now, I know terms like equality right now are celebrated justifiably and rightly so in our culture. Everything needs to be equal. And terms like authority and hierarchy are sort of triggering and despised in our modern era. But no matter how we dice it, every relationship, kings and slaves, employers and employees, teachers and students, parents and children, even just our baseline friendships where we're not thinking about authority, hierarchy, or equality, all of our relationships are built on a series of give and take, sacrifice and service, that's equality, decision-making and direction, that's leadership and authority, compliance and following, that's hierarchy. They're neutral terms. It's just the way that things are built. Everybody track with that a little bit? Okay. Take, for example, today, the seemingly simple but actually highly volatile question of where are we going to grab lunch? Now, of course, it's Mother's Day today, so it's so easy. Whatever mom says goes. Regardless of what everybody else complains about, says they want, mom says it's decision done. But let's move this decision to next week. It's a group of friends. And there, becomes the, there comes the question, hey, where are we going to go to lunch today? That question sets off a cascade of responses. Of what? The whole group, giving and taking, decision-making, deferment, leadership, and following. And all of that happens in a matter of seconds, almost unconsciously within the relational system. All as personalities and dispositions and desires very subtly give and take, defer and decide until the relational system lands on Thai food or burgers or burritos as what? A united group of friends, right? Until you're on the way to burgers and then you've, we've all got this person in the friend group. You guys sure you want burgers? <laughs> That tiny little moment, what comes from that chaos? Every Friday night, I just hold my breath and begin praying. Okay, I'm going to ask her where she wants to eat for date night. And it is chaos every Friday night. The point that Koheleth wants you and I to understand is that in every relationship, dynamic relationship, which are all of them, tiny things are always going to be moving the whole system. Whether you are the one who sits back and you're an introvert and you just sort of passively follow and you're going along with the crowd or you're the kind of big extroverted out there guy or gal in the relational context, we are to follow wisely and we are to lead wisely because everything influences everything else and it all matters. And I want you guys to know something here. Koheleth was so sophisticated in his observance. He noted that the quiet, passive, go-with-the-flow folks, they exert as much influence as the extroverted take-charge friends in that moment of deciding where to go to lunch. They're usually just a little more sneaky, wisey, let's call it wise, let's call it passive-aggressive about where they want to go. <laughs> Koheleth, though, he frames his example. He gives an example of this sort of upside-down way of influence and shifting the whole relational system uh, with rulers and subordinates. Verse 4, if a ruler's anger rises against you, do not leave your post. Calmness can lay great offenses to rest. And so in the case of subordinates here, 
Goheleth noticed a little bit of calm, just a deep breath in a moment when the boss is going off the rails or mom and dad are starting to lose it because they're upset about whatever's going on in the house. Just a deep breath as a subordinate, as somebody in the hierarchy that's lower in the hierarchical system. Just a deep breath in that moment of presence and calm in an authority figure's presence who's flying off the handle. It can diffuse the whole situation. Learning to be a non-anxious presence, learning as a subordinate or a follower or lower in the hierarchical system of relationship, learning to pay attention to your own body language and facial cues and to the body language and facial cues of whoever's in front of you in a heated situation with a boss, a parent, a spouse, a friend, it will go a long way, huge influence in keeping the relationship healthy and vibrant. Now, while those in relationships who don't outwardly exert power still shape the whole, what Koheleth was really upset about as he watched this life was he was concerned and grieved by the outsized impact that foolish people, people who disregard God, who hold places of authority, he was upset about how much damage fools can do when they are given a place of authority in the relational dynamic systems, verses five through seven. There's this evil that I saw under the sun. It's this error that arises from a ruler. You put a fool in a high position while the rich occupy the low ones. I see slaves on horseback while princes go on foot like slaves. So he gives this example of incompetent leaders. And these incompetent leaders, they delegate positions of power to people who disregard God, to immature people, to untested people, to prideful people. And in Koheleth's estimation, he was looking at this through the eyes of an ancient Near Easterner. And so he saw people whose life choices should have landed them in slavery but instead they were on horseback like kings. While those who were of truly noble character, who regarded God, had to walk about on foot, all because the fool at the top of the hierarchy made these tiny little decisions that affected the whole of the social system. Does that make sense? So the noble lowly couldn't get a leg up because the fool at the top kept his boot on the whole system through continual dumb decisions. Now, in verses 16 to 19, he gives another example of how fools in high places wreak havoc on societies, on families, and on relational systems. Verses 16 to 18. Woe to the land whose king was a servant and whose princes feast in the morning. Blessed is the land whose king is of noble birth and whose princes eat at a proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through laziness, the rafters sag. Because of idleness, the house leaks. Again, he's using Near Eastern language and imagery here. But what he does is he commends the positive effect that rulers who regard God, rulers who operate in the fear of the Lord, Koheleth commends the great outsized effect that they can have on the whole social relational system. These rulers that regard God, they don't feast all day in this hedonistic sort of self-serving way. They're not reveling in their authority. They're not reveling in their fatness and their riches. No, noble, wise authorities eat when the rest of their society eats. And they're not eating for gluttony. They're eating to strengthen themselves so that they might lead and protect and guide. The image that's coming to my mind right now is all of these gorgeous moms making sure that they're putting just right amounts of nutrient in their body for their babies. That's authority. That's powerful. That's beautiful. Wise leaders, they use their authority to bless the whole relational system. Why? Because they identify with their followers. Their followers' flourishing is their flourishing. They do have the authority in the hierarchy. Listen, millennials, Gen Z, there is such a thing as healthy, godly, beautiful, necessary authority. It must be exercised. But authority within a healthy relational system is exercised as we eat together as a community of equals, 
for the sake of everyone's flourishing. And then Koheleth swings back to the other pole, and he looks at the detriment of fools again, and he says basically he can't stand lazy leaders whose ineptitude and incompetence causes misery for everyone under them. Why? Because the house is leaking, sagging rafters, the crumbling of everything under the weight of their folly, and everybody has to live in that miserable place. And then he summarizes the leadership of fools with this somewhat cryptic statement. This is, a, this is one of the most difficult verses in the entire Hebrew Bible, so here it is. A feast is made for laughter, wine makes life merry, and money is the answer for everything. <laughs> I'm pretty sure... Most of the scholars would agree here. I'm pretty sure what he's saying here is that harmful leaders of relational systems, they just sort of live in a fool's paradise. And their decisions are based not on their followers flourishing, but on whatever's going to bring to them in the moment laughter and merriment. They're very shallow thinkers. And at the end of the day, Koheleth, he saw in lots of foolish leaders this need for money. He reissued his warning about mammon, the demon god of wealth. Those who make money the answer for everything, they create immeasurable pain for those under their watch. Now, in the context here, just track with me, Koheleth is referencing kings and servants. That's something that we Americans abandoned back in like 1775. We're done with the kings thing. We love to watch that over in the UK, but we don't do that here. But our political and social climate, it runs parallel to Koheleth's culture from thousands of years ago or hundreds of years ago. Old Testament scholar C.L. Show. Xiao comments in this way. He says, Koheleth's world was a society in turmoil. The government could not be trusted to rule efficiently, for it was losing control. There was apparently a significant turnover in the bureaucracy as incompetent idiots were promoted to high offices while members of the ruling elite were brought down. The economy was clearly unstable. Sound like any conversation any of you have been involved in over the last five years? Pray for your leaders. Don't call them idiots. This is where Koheleth was... His cynicism, we need to be Jesus-y, not Kohelethy, in our political conversations. But know this, the logjams, the incompetence, the selfishness, the scandal, the ineptitude that pockmark our current political system, they have been the same in every society going back all the way to the Garden of Eden in the fall. The moment that Adam and Eve believed the lie that just a little bit of disregard for God's will, just a little bit, just a little bit, just a little moment, just a moment of doing what, hey, this is what I think would be right, just a bite. But the Bible doesn't tell us. Maybe, maybe Eve was just like, I'm just going to take a little lick. Just a, oh, just a little bit of that forbidden fruit. The Bible doesn't tell us. It doesn't say that she just gorged on it. Maybe it was just a little tiny, tiny bite. Because it's not really that big of a deal. Did God really say? Did God really say? And it was that moment of deciding, mm, I'm not sure that he really said, and if he did, it's probably not that big of a deal, that the entire cosmos was cast into absolute chaos. And it's not just society, you guys. These authority systems, you are exercising authority today in your friend circles. Catastrophic damage occurs between professors and students, pastors and parishioners on both sides, parents and children on both sides, spouses on both sides, friendships, because one party or both party foolishly ignore that what they think are inconsequential decisions, they will have outsized consequence on the entire relational system. So walk wisely, regard God, decide carefully, think relationally as both leader and follower. More on that at our conclusion here in about 15 minutes. Two more things here, two more contexts that he explores making a big difference, where small things make a big difference. Work and awareness. This is an interesting one. Koheleth watched people go to work every day, a very common occurrence, and what he saw was 
accidents, mishaps, incidents, and surprises. And these little moments of surprise and mishap were impossible to account for no matter how many safety measures were put in place. Digging a pit, you may fall into it, verses 8 through 11. Whoever breaks through a wall may be bitten by a snake. Quarrying stones, some of it may fall on you. Split logs may endanger them. If the axe is dull, make sure you sharpen it. Then you won't need to hit the tree as hard. Skill will bring success. If a snake bites before it's charmed, the charmer receives no fee. What Koheleth observed is that most days on the job are just the mundane day in, day out, nose to the grind. But the wise, the wise recognize and we're always aware of a possible accident happening somewhere within the work framework. Now, I can tell you this is absolutely true from my own personal life. I could tell you story after story, but for the sake of time, I won't. Before Salvation and Ministry, I was a construction guy. I was a roofer with my uncle's company for a long time. I had multiple welding certifications. I ran a large hydro crane for a season. I had a journeyman sign electrician's license. I lived in that world. And most days, I can tell you, on the job, nothing happened. But the very few times that something did happen, it has had outsized effect on my body. Back when I was running a crane, I hopped off in the middle of January. We were up in Fairfield, Idaho to help a crew roll a massive beam off of and onto another beam. The, there's like 30 guys on this beam, and they're all just moving it. And I had my hand underneath it, and all of a sudden, I hear the, key, I hear the crew chief, get out of the way. And they dropped it, and I didn't get my hand out fast enough, and it smashed the tip of my finger off. My left finger smashed it completely off. So now they had to sew the side of my hand onto the tip of my finger. I can tell you, me and my son were just out climbing in Joshua Tree over the last couple days. It's a weird thing to try to crimp a rock when you have no feeling in the tip of your finger. Just a moment, just a brief half-second moment has changed my body for the rest of my life. Another time I was on a sign job and I was working on a neon sign, and these neon signs are run by extremely high-voltage transformers with low wattage, like 10,000 volts. It's a lot of juice but not as dangerous as you think it is because of the low amperage that run through these things. So I'm doing a glass job. I break the glass, which was a pretty common occurrence for me. I got to go back to the glass. I got to go back to the shop, get new glass, and then head back out and put it on the sign. It took long enough that unbeknownst to me when I got out there, I've got exposed GTO wires. I get in my crane. I'm heading up in the bucket, and the service attendant had turned on the sign. I'm whistling, all right, day's almost done, and I go to grab hold of a 10,000-volt exposed GTO wire. And what I remember happening was feeling my entire every, if you can imagine every muscle in your body instantly seizing as intensely as you possibly can, the air in my lungs went out of me so fast. I remember hearing in my ear thinking, is this what it sounds like to die? Because it was some like, <laughs> and I couldn't stop it. Thankfully, when my arm muscle seized, it pulled me off of that wire and I collapsed down into the bucket and just laid there for about five minutes, like making sure my eyebrows were still not, you know, like not singed off. Every time I see an exposed wire, every time I'm like, Ooh. that was 25 years ago. When digging a hole, be aware that you could fall into it. When building something, don't let it surprise you and break you. Don't, wisdom is not lulled to sleep by the huge amounts of normalcy in our daily duties. It's always, wisdom is always on watch for the unseen snakes in the walls of our daily work. And it's not only construction, you guys. I recognize in a professional community like ours, there are financial, relational, and organizational mistakes that in a moment can fall on us in our work and in our career environments and leave us marked forever. So be wise. Be wise. And then Koheleth gives some 
positive advice on how to go to work as well and the mundanity of the normalcy of our daily day in. He says, this little bit of wisdom that you apply to your daily mundanity, to the daily normalcy of work life, that little bit of wisdom is like sharpening an ax, so you don't have to put as much effort into the work that you're doing. And then he gives this super Near Eastern illustration. He's basically like, look, if your job is to be a snake charmer, make sure you have a PhD in snake charming before you let that thing out of the bucket. You need to be well-trained. You need to be skilled before you go jumping into something as dangerous as snake charming. And so make sure that you've done your school. Make sure that you've been educated so that you can get your fees instead of being bitten. Finally, Koheleth addresses our mouths and our speech. I would say this is maybe the most important one for me and for our society. Speech and integrity. Words from the mouth of the wise are gracious, but fools are consumed by their own lips. At the beginning, their words are folly. At the end, their wickedness, madness, and fools multiply words. No one knows what is coming. Who can tell someone else what will happen after them? The toil of fools wearies them. They don't even know the way to town. You know, they say, of course, the proverbial sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That is an absolute 100% categorical lie. Words create and words absolutely crush. Wise words bring grace and gentleness and kindness, tenderness to the world. Mothers, thank you for your words. Fools' words are like fire, and it consumes and destroys everything, including themselves from their own lips. Hundreds of years later, James, the brother of Jesus, he would echo Koheleth's warnings about our words. Likewise, James 3, 5 to 6, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great force is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. Be careful what you say. <laughs> Koheleth understood words to be so powerful that he actually exhorted readers to even consider the private thoughts that go on in your head. Do you know where we can think that? We can just think whatever we want, think. We can foster whatever thoughts we want to have about that person. He said, you need to be careful what you're thinking about another person, lest that thought go from your head down into your heart, and from the heart it goes out your mouth and becomes like a little bird flying into ears that you don't want somebody to hear it. Don't revile the king, even in your thoughts. Or curse the rich in your bedroom because a bird in the sky may carry your words and a bird on the wing may report what you say. Ten more minutes. If you don't feel insecure at this moment, you've probably missed all four categories and point that I've made. <laughs> you should be sitting in your seat squirming at this moment going, how many dumb decisions have I made in the last five minutes that are going to cause a hurricane of chaos this afternoon and for the rest of my life? Oh, God, mercy! is Koheleth's point. I believe the Holy Spirit allowed this cynical man's thoughts to warn us. I think we should squirm under his warnings. He was a pretty raw guy. And so if you find yourself feeling a little bit insecure, a little bit uncertain, uh, you should be asking, which detrimental effects have I set off with foolish decisions and mistakes and misspoken words in my life? And this, friends, is why Jesus came. This is why Jesus came. Jesus, he, when he was here, he actually emphasized the opposite of this. He emphasized the outside influence that his kingdom has in redeeming our folly. 
Just the littlest things can redeem huge swaths of folly and mistakes. In fact, he said the very concept of the kingdom of God in this world, he, he painted the kingdom of God as something that is very small, but eventually it saturates and fills and takes over something very large. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it's the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it's the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. And it's this kingdom that's working by the Holy Spirit in meditation through the scriptures, through the sweet counsel of the church together in community. It's this kingdom that's working in our hearts. And all it requires, folks, for our foolishness to be redeemed and sanctified and set apart and made new and made whole is an infinitesimal turn towards Jesus just saying, I surrender and I trust my mess to you. I surrender it to you. Every mistake, every moment that I have messed up, I surrender it to you in faith. Truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Mountains of mistakes, mountains of missteps, mountains of wrong words and wrong choices, they are removed in the moment, the tiniest turn to Jesus. The moment you say, I trust you, I turn from my fear and anxiety and my messing up, and I just want to obey you. He will sort it out. The kingdom of God and the power of the Holy Spirit and these infinitesimal movements towards Jesus. You do that for the rest of the duration of your life and over the duration of your life. What he does is he takes all the chaos that we have caused and he reorders our catastrophes into symphonies of love and family and peace and joy. In the dynamic system of our souls, where the kingdom is deep at work within us, and then within that framework of our soul, it moves out into our relational context of spouses and friends and mothers and fathers and children and workplace environments and class place environments. It's what Jesus called leaven or yeast in the bread. The leaven of these small, wise, obedient choices to God causes everything to rise to the level of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven, verse 13 of Matthew 13, excuse me, verse 33 of Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast or leaven that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked through the dough. So we're to hope in this as Christians. We should squirm under Koheleth's warnings. Oh my gosh, I've lit off a few hurricanes at this point in my life. But then we should turn to Jesus and we should hope in this and believe in this and live into this truth that the kingdom of God in which we now dwell and which indwells us, it has outsized influence and today it is coming. Today, the kingdom of God is breaking in in the most infinitesimal ways into this world through you and I, through those moments of silent prayer right now, through those moments of a gentle smile on your face at the grocery store, through moments in community of sharing food and laughter, through quiet times in scriptures, meditating and memorizing, through times of worship. These infinitesimally small, insignificant moments, they are breaking in the kingdom of God into this foolish world and redeeming all of it. And in Jesus, our foolishness is forgiven and it's gone. And because of that, we as the people of God, we as kingdom people of God, we believe that silence will always say more than screaming. What feels insignificant and inconsequential, silence does more than screaming. Leaders take the low role of servants. Children are examples to be followed. The powerless are actually operating in God's power. So as we come to communion this morning, in the history of humanity to set up the cross for us, the cross should have been something of absolutely no consequence, but it saved the entire cosmos. Think about this. 
you've got a backwater Jewish peasant from the middle of nowhere, and he's proclaiming himself to be king of the universe. He should have immediately just been written off as a complete lunatic. People should have just listened to Jesus and been like, uh, crazy, we're out. But they didn't for some reason. He then gathers around himself this unlikely ragtag group of political and social opponents. He trains them to be servants instead of rulers, silent instead of screaming, prayerful instead of power playing. And his claim to the throne eventually reaches Caesar's ears and it gets him crucified, capital punishment. So he dies as a lunatic criminal in the eyes of his society on an instrument for the most despised of people. He was beaten and robed in purple with thorns adorning his head, just mocked and scorned and cast aside. Then later, the followers who would write about him and those events of the crucifixion, they somehow saw that his cross was actually a throne, that his crucifixion was a coronation, and that his thrones were his crown. Because three days after that, what should have been an inconsequential moment in the day and life of a Roman empire, two women of no account said they saw him alive three days later. But even that, it all should have been written off as some silly story that this crazy sect of Jewish people made up. It should have just been nothing but a strange, silly story. But instead, the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth and the proclamation of his resurrection has cataclysmically changed everything in the universe. What at the time seemed like absolutely nothing in a backwater corner of the Roman Empire has changed everything. Everything. And that's why this week, the forgiven and redeemed communities of Jesus Christ, this week, we walk out into this world and we're going to label with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength because none of us wants to go out and make foolish missteps and mistakes that light off hurricanes. And so we wake up in the morning and we simply say to him, Today, I want to love you and I want to obey you in every single tiny detail of my life. That moment that that little bit of disregard begins to sort of weasel its way into a decision that you're about to make, just run from the cliff. Just run. Don't even consider the cliff. Get away from the cliff. Because Christ jumped off that thing for you. He fell all the way to the bottom and was slaughtered as a lamb at the bottom of that cliff for you. He absorbed all the chaos of our foolishness. And he intends this week to transform your relationships, your friendships, to transform your workplaces, to transform your classrooms. He intends to transform them through these tiny little mustard seed communities. Like these. Like this. Think about this. God intends to transform San Diego through hundreds of little tiny communities like these. This is the inbreaking, you and I, today. And I want you to feel, instead of the squirming under Koheleth's warnings about the mistakes that we've made, I want you to take upon yourself the mantle of responsibility. Take upon yourself the anointing of the Holy Spirit and be sent to be the hands and feet of Jesus. Walk into your workplaces and your families and into your friendships. And let that ripple effect of love and prayer and wise decision-making bring such joy and peace. Pay attention this week. Let a little bit of faith in Jesus and his kingdom usher in joy and obedience because it's all adding up. Would you please all stand with me for the reading of our liturgy? 
Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. 